This message is a ministry of Plainville Baptist Church. www.plainvillebaptistchurch.org All right, turn your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 5. We have the older children here this morning for the Lord's Supper. Tonight, we have eschatology. I have several good questions that some of you have asked. I think they're important questions of all different types, all different topics. And um, we'll be here tonight at 6 for that. Yesterday, my family and I were hiking, and um, I was reminded of a verse. Um, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And uh, we were crossing over a brook, and um, I thought, you know what? I saw it. I said, you know what, I don't need to stop back and, and help my wife across this one. This is just easy. And as I got to the last rock, I uh, slipped and went sprawling over a couple of other rocks. And I thought, okay, when we start taking things for granted, um, or granite, I suppose. Um, yeah, so I, I didn't do that again. I, uh, I, I realized, no, maybe... They're trickier than than they look. Revelation chapter 5. We're going to read the whole chapter. Chapters 4 that James read and chapter 5 are are one part of the same vision that John had. So let's read in verse 1 of chapter 5. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, or a scroll actually, written inside and on the back, sealed up, with seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures as if a a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, or the sevenfold Spirit of God, the perfect Spirit of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy Are you to take the book and to break its seals? For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. These are extraordinary verses of Scripture. And as we've begun this past week reading through the book of Revelation, I want to note a few things before we get into this passage about the book of Revelation so you might understand it better, at least understand it as you come into seeing how the book is laid out. And there's three things here. Number one, in the book of Revelation, there's 404 verses. 
265 of those verses, pay attention to this, 265 of those verses have 550 Old Testament, Old Testament references, Old Testament allusions. Meaning there's 550, actually I found one more this week, so 551 um, references to the Old Testament of things that are taking place in the book of Revelation, which says this, Twice the number of verses that had at least two allusions, references to the Old Testament in every verse that speaks of it, 150 more verses, uh, I'm sorry, 150 more references than there are verses in the book of Revelation. And it says this, if you don't know your Old Testament, you're not going to understand the book of Revelation. If you aren't reading the Old Testament, you're not going to see the things in the book of Revelation that referred back to it. And why? It's important. It's extremely important to understand that. The book of Revelation, you can't understand the book of Revelation without the Old Testament. Secondly, there are three key words that are found throughout the book of Revelation. Very important for you to understand. One, the word that occurs the most, 34 sometimes, King, kingdom, ruling in Revelation. What's that mean? It means the kingdom of this world is fighting against the kingdom of God. Who's going to win? The book is about the kingdom of the world, of God, who's going to win. Another word that shows up several times is the word or martyr, or testimony. All the same, same word, depending on how it's translated in different spots. And it speaks of those who are speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, bearing witness or even losing their life for the sake of Jesus Christ. Third word, the word patience. The word patience or perseverance, sometimes it's translated perseverance, but the word patience means to remain under. Not to quit, not to give up, but to keep going and to look up, to recognize we're not to quit. We're to face upward and look to the Lord in the midst of the trouble and difficulty. Can't know, the Old Test can't know the book of Revelation without knowing the Old Testament. Three specific words that deal with what Revelation is about. Kingdom, patience, testimony. If you want to understand the outline, it's found in chapter 1, verse 19. Very simple, uh, very clear outline. Verse 19, therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Chapter 1 is the things you've seen. John, these are the things you've seen. Write about them. The things that are, are found in chapters 2 and 3. The churches. What was going on in that time when John was writing, when John was seeing this vision? The things that are. And chapter 4, verse 1 starts with, and the things that will be after these things. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold... A door standing open in heaven. It begins the rest of the book. Chapter 4 and chapters 4 and 5 are pivotal, crucial to seeing how the book lays itself out. We come to this scene. Um, it sets the tone for the rest of the book. Jesus Christ is telling John, you need to see what's going on in heaven first or else you are going to be greatly distressed greatly fearful, discouraged, and fainting before we get to the end. And what you need, John, to see is the end from the beginning. You need to see what's going on in heaven. I have something to show you, so come up here. You'll not be able to bear what's going to take place in the world until you see the throne room of God. Once you see the throne room of God, 
and have a vision of the throne room of God, nothing else will shake you. You will be able to bear up under this. Friends, if you are troubled when you see the suffering of God's people, or when you commit yourself to serve Jesus Christ and you begin to undergo trouble, don't despair. Because we are not losing the war. It might look outwardly like this, but you need to see chapters 4 and 5 for what they are because things are not going to get better. They are going to get worse. There was something that took place in the last parts of the 19th century, a doctrine called post-millennialism, that everything is getting better and better, and soon, once we take care of everything we're supposed to do, Jesus is going to come back and set up his kingdom once we've gotten it ready for him. Well, after two world wars and various disasters and the falling apart of the Western world, post-millennialism is dead for a good reason. The Bible never taught it. But we see here, John is being told, regardless of what you see going on, God is in control. God is going to win. You know what? We, we see this. The wicked right now are saying, you have no place to stand. You have no place for hope. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 11. He said, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That, those words weren't coming out of the mouth of the righteous. Those were coming out of the mouth of the wicked who are trying to discourage the righteous. Hey, we're destroying all your foundations. What can you do then? We're taking God out of education. What do you think you're going to do after that? We're saying everything came about by natural course. What do you think of that? We say because of that, it doesn't matter if guys marry women or women marry guys or guys marry guys or because we've set ourselves up as God, as the creator. What are you going to do about that? John tells us what we need to be doing about that because Jesus told him, what needs to take place. You see, if you take this to heart this morning, keep in your heart what you've seen, what God would show you, you will have patience to endure, to continue under the current situation because you're looking up. Let's talk about what John saw. John came into the Holy of Holies. You understand this? This is where God dwelt. It's God's throne room. In the Old Testament, the high priest could go into a physical copy of the Holy of Holies once a year, but it was only a physical copy. It wasn't a real thing. John gets to see the glimpse of the real thing here. And it's interesting because he had some kind of relationship to the high priest's family from what we know of John. But here, he's not going into the physical copy of what God said, but into heaven itself, into the holy of holies. And so there's two things we want to look at this morning. And if you'd excuse me for just a moment, it is the season of ragweed. and the season to glory in the throne room of God, which makes you fill up as well. Two things we want to talk about this morning. Number one, the celebration in the Holy of Holies. The celebration in the Holy of Holies. And secondly, the coronation in the Holy of Holies. The celebration in the Holy of Holies in chapter 4, and the coronation of the Holy of Holies in chapter 5. The celebration of the Holy of Holies focuses on the worship of God the Father. The coronation in the Holy of Holies focuses on the worship of Jesus Christ. And so we, we see this here, and as we enter into chapter 4, and as we see the glory of God, 
we understand this. We, we see God. He's sitting on the throne. We don't see God, right? There's no physical representation of God. And he, there's even no physical representation of Jesus Christ in this passage. It's a spiritual representation of Jesus Christ. There were to, to be no idols of God the Father or of Jesus Christ the Son. But here he is, like a, a, a he's described as a reflection of glory of a, of a brilliant stone with an emerald-like rainbow around the throne of God. And in that throne room, in that throne room, there is four living creatures, odd things, cherubim. We might, might not say they're so odd when we see them in reality, when we come before God's throne. But these four living creatures are there, and they're praising God, and these 24 elders who are, who are representatives of God's people throughout the ages, probably 12 representing the Old Testament and 12 representing the New Testament, the patriarchs and the apostles. Uh, but they're, they're there with crowns worshiping God. Worship is an expression of awe, of wonder at the beauty of God's character and action. And we see that in this passage. Have you ever experienced wonder or awe? Sometimes we can have misdirected wonder, can't we? Misdirected awe. You know, you see a stunning sunset or, or you're standing over the Grand Canyon and your heart is filled with wonder. But do you allow that wonder to direct yourself Godward to praise Him or do you simply just enjoy the feeling of awe without a proper direction for that awe. You see, awe is not something that just came about by chance. Awe was given to humanity for the purpose of praising God. Wow, God is awesome. And so we see this, and, and sometimes we can get misdirected in our awe, in our wonder, and just enjoy that. And we ought to enjoy it, but we ought to direct it past that thing to God. It's like looking at a painting, at a portrait, and praising the painting instead of praising the artist. That's what we do when we misdirect awe. And that's what's going on here in this place. These, these creatures, these elders, they're, they're praising God. And we see the worship of God portrayed, the worship of the Father portrayed in this chapter in the beauty of his character, the beauty of his action. The individuals that are worshiping here are worshiping the Lord for his holiness. The four living creatures cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. They're praising him for his, his holiness. Holiness means there's no one like God. Holiness means to be separate from something else, someone else, other things. That God is completely holy, three times holy, or maybe holy to the third power, however you want to see it. God is holy. There is no one like him. And why are they calling him holy? Why are they acknowledging him as holy? First of all, because he is eternal. No one else is eternal. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Even the angels are not eternal. They were created. Only God is holy, eternal. Only God is eternal. He is the only one who's always been and always will be. And we see that in verses 8 and 9. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy. And then in verse 9, to him who lives forever and ever. He's eternal. They're praising him for his eternality. But secondly, they're, they're praising him for the fact that he is the creator. He is the creator. And, and we see this here. You know what? People make things, but they don't create things. People, people design stuff. They invent things, but they don't create them. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there's a word, bara, that's used only of God. It's used of his creatorship. He makes things out of nothing and brings them into being. 
God said, let there be light, and there was light. He speaks them. We can't do that. God is holy. No one is like God in the ability to create, to fashion or shape things. Yes, we might, but we cannot create in that sense. No, he is the creator. And because of these, because of these attributes of God, they are crying out. The elders begin to cry out. They hear this, holy, holy, holy. And when they do, the elders are looking at God. And they're saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory, honor, and power for you created all things. And by your will they exist and they have their being and they are created. So we see this, everything in this scene cries glory to God. So they're worshiping him. What do we understand? All of these things exist because of your will. They were created. Nothing is going to happen that will ever take God by surprise. There may have been things that have come into your life that are taking you by surprise. But nothing, even what you have been sidetracked by, has taken God by surprise. He is in control. He is in charge. He even lets the devil have a long rope, a long leash, because you know what? It's a long way down into the lake of fire, and he's going to hang a long way. God's letting him have that long rope so he can hang himself. God is in control. God is in charge, even if he lets the devil loose for a little bit. But secondly, that was the celebration in the Holy of Holies. Secondly, we see the coronation in the Holy of Holies in chapter 5. And this is the, this is, you, you can't get to the rest of the book without chapter 5. You can't finish up earth history without chapter 5. It can't go on if chapter 5 doesn't take place. And we see this here. We see the worship of the sun. Why is the sun worshiped? Why is Jesus Christ worshipped in this? Let me, let me mention a little about this passage because, again, it's, it's Old Testament. And the first thing is, here is this buddy. Nobody's able to open the scroll. No one is able to complete earth history. No one is able to finish the judgment of God and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to bring in the new heaven and the new earth no one's here. And John is upset. He's weeping. He's weeping over this because he knows it can't go on unless someone is there. And he can't step up. He's not worthy to do this. And as he weeps, one of the elders comes to him and says, behold, stop weeping. It's okay. Stop crying. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. And he came, verse 7, and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So what is that about? Well, in Daniel chapter 7, we see this scene played out after all of the other kingdoms of the world are destroyed, taken down by their own hubris. In verse 13 of chapter, Daniel chapter 7, it says, I kept looking in the night visions. What's next? What's next, Daniel's thinking? And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Does this sound familiar? Maybe something we just read? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So we see this here. The son is worshipped because he's equal with the father. He's able to come into the throne room. Why do I say he's equal with the father? Because here's another passage that's, that's related. So John's saying, 
who, there's no one worthy to come and do this. There's no one worthy to come and finish this up. In Isaiah 59, in verse 16, it says, when the Lord saw that there was no man, there was no one, no one who could help. He said justice was turned aside. Evil was, was making a prey for himself. Truth was destroyed in the streets. Verse 16, he saw there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him. His righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Here is Jehovah, the Lord. Wait, wasn't he sitting on the throne? Yes. Well, that's the understanding of the triune nature of God. And he came up to bring salvation. He came up to bring in everlasting righteousness. And he took the scroll out of the hand of the one sitting on the throne. Psalm 24 says, who can go into the holy hill of the Lord? Who can come into his presence? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart and has not lifted up his soul to lying. Only him. Only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus is the one with clean hands and a pure heart and has never lied. And he came into the throne room unashamed, unafraid, because he would not receive the judgment of God because he was perfect. He was God come in the flesh. And so we see the Son worshipped here. First of all, for his power. Verse 5 says, Stop weeping. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. You see, he's worshipped for his power by virtue of his resurrection. By virtue of his resurrection. He is a lamb standing as if slain. Wait, if you're slain, you're not standing. Right? Standing as if slain. He's overcome. Romans 1.4 says, He has declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The elders are praising Him because of His resurrection. He's overcome. But secondly, they praise Him because of His purchase. Because of his purchase, they praise him. And we notice here, the 24 elders fell down, each one holding a harp. That's the praise of the saints. And golden bowls full of incense, which is the petition of the saints. Here they are before the Lamb, praising him and petitioning his throne. And they worship him. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So here, they are praising him for his purchase by virtue of his blood that was shed for all the world. He died on your behalf. You see, they were praising him because they were in heaven because the Lamb purchased them out of their sin. He paid for their sin. By virtue of His shed blood, He died on our behalf and gave life to us. And so we, we see this here. You are saved, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by His blood, which he has shed for us, and by the renewing of the Holy Spirit who draws us to Christ through his death and resurrection. So we see this. They were worshiping him for his power by virtue of his resurrection. They were worshiping him for his purchase by virtue of his shed blood. So why does God show you and I this? Why does he show you and me this? What is he doing here? There's two actions I believe John wants us to take from this. Two actions that you need to see. When you say, I'm going to serve Jesus Christ, I'm going to walk before him, I'm going to do his will, I want to honor him, and trouble comes against you, hardship comes against you. Two things John says. Number one, look up. 
Number one, look up. Because we win. We win. Verse 13 of chapter 5, Every created thing in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, we're praising God. We win. Everyone is going to praise God. Some willingly, some unwillingly. But all will praise Him. We win. Look up. I don't care what things look around you like. Look up because we win. It's true. We win. We win. Secondly, not only look up, but speak up because He won. Jesus did the victory. Jesus won the victory. He won. And so we need to speak up. Tell of His shed blood. Tell of the gift of eternal life. Here He is in verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He was slain for us. We ought to tell others. We ought to speak up about it because he won. And if someone is not on the winning side, this should be, this should be common sense. They lose. And Jesus was slain for them so they need not lose. But it's our responsibility to tell them that they might come to know the one who was slain for them. We need to speak up. We need to look up when those troubles are coming against us because we want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you serving Him? Have you said, I'm going to serve Him? regardless of the cost, and then the cost comes, look up. And then speak up. Tell of his shed blood. Tell of the gift of eternal life which he purchased for everyone, every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Speak up. And let me add one more action. Maybe you're here today and you're not saved. You're on the losing side right now. You've never, there's never been a time in your life when you've called upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. You understand that? There's a necessity for you to call up, to call upon the name of the Lord, because it's not just by believing it that you are saved. I believed the truth for 19 years. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he was God come in the flesh. I believe he died for my sins, but I had never received that. As a gift. I'd never received the gift of eternal life. No, it's true. If you are here without Christ, you need to call upon him. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He died for your sin penalty. He rose again for your justification. And he wants to make you right with the Father. So that you too can come into the throne room and praise God. And so we see that. We recognize this very truth. And for either you who are saved or you who are not saved, I want you to notice this one thing. And I hope it will change the way you think. But there's an expansion of praise and worship throughout the book. In chapter 4, at the beginning of chapter 4, we see the four living creatures praising God. It's like John is close up. He sees the four, the four living creatures praising God. Holy, holy, holy. But then... It's like he backs up a little bit and there's these 24 elders and he, he sees them bowing down before the Lord. And then they worship the Lamb in chapter 5, verse 10. Worthy is the Lamb. And then it says in chapter 11, there were these angels, myriads, ten thousands times ten thousands of angels and thousands and thousands more. He backs up and sees this whole scene worshiping the Lamb. And then, in the very last verses, he sees everyone 
everyone throughout creation praising God. It's like he backs up and sees all of these on the earth and under the earth and in the seas and all that is on them. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so, if you are here without Christ, do you want to participate in this time, in this worship of the God who gave himself for you, you need to be saved. And you who are, where's your focus been? Have you been looking up? Have you been speaking out? If you're without Christ, we're going to have an invitation song. You need him. Would you come? We're not going to delay long. We have the Lord's Supper here. We want to focus on that. We want to take our time for that. But if you need Christ as your Savior, would you come forward? You need to call upon Him. You need to receive Him. Would you come during this time so that you can be saved? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for this picture from Your throne room that we might see that You're in charge, You are going to win, and that we can rest in that. We can trust you. Lord, I pray if there are some who are still on the losing side, they might see what you've done for them, even though they were your enemies, even though they had sinned against you and blasphemed your name. You gave yourself for them. Lord, might they see that before it's too late. Might they call upon you, receive you, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand. We're going to sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look up. You need to turn your eyes upon Jesus. If you need to be saved, would you come as we get ready to sing? You come on that first verse. seated. I'm going to ask the deacons and those assisting with the Lord's Supper to come forward. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul describes the Lord's Supper and why we're to participate in it. And he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you as of first importance, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing this morning. We're proclaiming the Lord's death. We're proclaiming that I've entered into the Lord's death and his life. His resurrection, it's proclaiming that what he did for us was sufficient. And it's, it's to call us to see how am I walking in light of his death on my behalf? Is my desire for honoring the Lord Jesus Christ and honoring his body? Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Take this time as the elements are passed before we eat together. In your own heart, Lord, is there something that I need to take care of before you? 
Is there something that I need to get right with you and I or with myself, someone in the body? He who eats and he drinks, eats and drinks judgment or discipline to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So Paul is saying that we might undergo discipline, even to the point of death, if we do not judge the body rightly. Now, he's not telling us to have some kind of morbid introspection that I, I, I can't forget anything. What is the Holy Spirit bringing up to you? And take care of that. Because he says, let a person examine himself and then eat and drink. He doesn't say, let a person examine himself and not eat and drink. We'll never be worthy in the sense of being perfect, but he's made us worthy to come to his table. He's invited us to his table. He calls us to eat together, symbolically showing ourselves not only one in core, in accord with each other, but with he himself. For our fellowship is with our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ and with each other. So let's pray and ask God for his thank, for, and give thanks to God for the bread. I'm going to ask Bill Becker if he would give thanks for the bread. Father in heaven, God, you indeed are great and greatly to be praised. Almighty God, everlasting King, thank you for your love and willingness to send your Son. And Lord Jesus, thank you for your willingness to leave heaven to come to earth and to die on that cross to pay the penalty for our sins. For we all were at one time enemies to you. As we remember this time, we just pray that you'd bless this bread. In Jesus' name, amen.
Scripture says that Jesus took the bread, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask Chuck Viterdo if he would give thanks unto the Lord for the cup. Lord, we thank you for all that you are, all that you've done, all that you do. I thank you for being you. I thank you for being among us, blessing us, growing us up. Lord, we ask for your blessing on this, on your, your precious blood, that we might just honor you. In Jesus' name I pray.
The scripture says that after supper, Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many. Do this in remembrance of me. We'll conclude the Lord's Supper service with prayer. You could pass the cups toward the center aisle and place them under the seat. Someone will pick those up later. This is an opportunity that we take for a deacon's offering um, when we have the Lord's Supper. It's, it's a fund that we have to be able to help those in physical needs uh, as well as being able to minister spiritually to individuals. And if you feel led to give toward that today, just mark that on your envelope uh, for the deacon's fund as you put that in the offering uh, as well on your way out. But let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your mercy and grace. We just pray and ask, O oh God, that you would allow us to be faithful to you, that we would know what the patience and faith of your people is. Might we glorify you because of the victory you've already gained through your Son. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.